I feel bad every Sunday. I feel like I'm the guy that kills the fellowship. So I feel like that guy that comes in and just makes things awkward. But, you know, you guys are laughing, enjoying um, being around each other, and then I come and ruin it. But anyways, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Cosign this morning. I pray that you guys are ready to study his word. If you have your Bibles, would you go with me over to Romans chapter 12 this morning? Romans chapter 12. While you guys are turning there, um, just want to let you guys know of um, something that's coming up. One of the things that we want to see happen here at Coastline is for people not to just simply come, sit, and leave. But one of the things we really um, are passionate about, one of the things we really want to see take place is people come, obviously sit, worship, hear the word, but also come and get to know people. You know, come and fellowship, come. And if you have ever seen our flyer, our flyer says, come find family. And ever since the beginning of when we started this church, when we planted it, that's been the vision, that people would come, obviously worship, study the word, but that people would come and find family when, when they come to church. And I really believe that that's something that God's word is very clear about when it comes to the body of Christ, becoming one in the body of Christ. And so to do that, one of the things we have to do is we have to go beyond having good church attendance on Sunday. You know, one of the things that we need to do is to be very intentional about, hey, my church life isn't going to just be come and sitting in a seat and that's it on Sundays. But to be intentional about growing, to be intentional about growing in my knowledge of God's word, but also being intentional about growing in relationships. And so just kind of want to let you guys know that we're in the process and kind of praying through what that's going to look like. But one thing that I, I can share with you guys this morning is we're going to, um, hopefully within the next month or so, we're going to be starting growth groups. You guys see the double G there? Okay. Growth groups. And the flyer is going to be green, by the way. Okay. So it'll go with the growth and everything. Anyways, listen, growth groups. And so I want you guys, even now, even though we're a uh, little while away from it, I want you guys to begin to pray, begin to seek the Lord. And um, we'd love for you guys, we'd love for everyone here who's coming to be part of a growth group. Okay. So that's just kind of the early stages. Tomorrow night, I have a meeting with our leadership team, and so we're going to discuss growth groups and um, see what that looks like, how to implement them. But I want you guys to pray, and that's truly my heart for everyone here, is that we would be growing and not just going to church, okay? So anyways, that's one thing. Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12 if you're taking notes this morning, you guys can title this morning's message, Dear Church, It's Time for Hard Questions. Dear Church, It's Time for Hard Questions. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come before you, and God, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for this moment, and God, even this space that you've given to us to be able to gather as a church family and to study your word. 
God, I pray as we dive into our text, Lord, as we continue teaching through Romans chapter 12, Lord, I know that there are, there, there are some st- there's some stuff in here. There are questions in here, God, that you want to use to challenge our hearts, to make us more like you. And so, God, we thank you for this morning, and we pray that you would speak. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. amen. This morning, we're going to move closer to the end of Romans chapter 12 by looking at verses 14 through 16. In case you haven't been with us, let me share with you two things to help you get caught up to speed. The first thing, if you're taking notes, is we're going through a little mini-series here on Sunday morning, and we've titled it Dear Church. So if you've been with us the past several weeks, we've been looking at just a variety of topics, variety of teachings that are addressed to the church. And the reason we called this series Dear Church is because in Romans chapter 12, go with me over to verse 1, the church is being addressed. Take a look at verse 1 with me. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So Romans chapter 12 is a chapter that is dedicated to speaking, to exhorting the church. There's two words I want you to look at here in verse 1. The first word is the word beseech. This word beseech in the Greek, it literally means to ask urgently. Ask urgently. And the second word I want to focus on for just a moment is the word brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And in this context, the word brethren focuses on family or specifically the church family. So if I could summarize the words beseech and brethren, it would be this. Paul is writing this chapter here, Romans chapter 12, and he's saying these words. He's saying, dear church, I have urgent words for my family in Christ. Dear church, I have urgent words for my family in Christ. And so our series here Our teaching here is dedicated and directed to the church. Secondly, if you're taking notes, the second thing that I want to focus on for just a moment, and I think it's important for us to know that from verses 9 through 21, those are the urgent words. And so these are the things that Paul is beseeching, begging of the church. In fact, if you've been with us, we know that from verse 9 to 21, Paul gives us 19 urgent words. He gives us 19 practical exhortations. And in case you haven't been with us, one more thing. The word exhortation is simply a fancy church word for strong words of encouragement. So far in our previous studies, we've covered the exhortations found in verses 9 through 13. And this morning, we're going to study the exhortations found in verses 14 through 16. Now, before we get into our text, I need to ask a question. I mentioned at the very beginning that the title of our message this morning is Dear Church, It's Time for Hard Questions. And my question this morning to all of us is simple Are you ready? Are you ready? 
And this isn't a Michael Buffer type of, are you ready to run? No, 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 it's, it's, it's not that. This is, listen, are you ready for God's word to touch? Give me your eyes for a moment, church. Are you ready for God's word to touch on some very touchy subjects in our life? You see, all of us in here, every single one of us have areas in our life where we don't like people touching them, where we don't like people getting involved in them, where we feel that we're entitled to our opinion and this is how I'm going to think and if this happens, this is how I'm going to react and I don't want anyone touching these areas of my life. Yet what I pray this morning happens is I pray that the Spirit of God, as we go through these warnings, these exhortations, I pray that the Spirit of God would lead us into teachings that actually touch the touchy areas of our life. In fact, if you're taking notes this morning, let me give you the areas right up front, okay, so that you know the areas we're going to touch on in verse 14, this morning, God's word is going to touch on how to deal with an enemy. How to deal with enemies in your life. You see, some of us, we're Christians. Some of us, we've given our life to the Lord, and yet we have enemies. And we feel that, man, no one needs to tell me how to handle my life, my business, my enemies. You see, that's, this is church. The, this is, these are the walls of the church. Yet what happens out there, no one needs to tell me how to deal with it. Yet this morning, God's word is going to touch on how to deal with our enemies. Secondly, the second thing we're going to focus on in verse 15 is God's word is going to touch on when it's the right time, ready, to cry. That's one of those other ones, right? I mean, as I look around the room this morning, there are some of you that do not look like you cry. Starting in the very front row with my man Manny in the back, right? I mean, he doesn't look like he cries. Alex, you don't look like you cry either. But you go, and there are some of us here where we're like, man, let's not talk about tears this morning. You know, let's not talk about crying, and yet God's word touches on when it's the right time to cry and then lastly, thirdly, this morning in verse 16, God's word is going to touch on stripping us of our pride. God's word is going to touch on stripping us of our pride. This right here is no doubt one of those areas where we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want someone even mentioning that there's a possibility of pride in our life. In fact, it's, it's a very prideful thing for us to even think that there is no pride in our life. And I pray that God's word would touch on that area as well. Let's go back to our question this morning. Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's start in verse 14. It says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now, let's be 100% honest this morning. Our flesh hates this exhortation. 
All the verses in scripture that have to do with turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, blessing those who persecute you. Jesus even took it a step farther. He says, not only do you turn the other cheek and love them, but I want you to, listen, pray for them. Our flesh hates this exhortation. Naturally, our flesh is ready to fight. We have this, you know, don't mess with me. Don't get in my way. You better back up. I'm ready to swing. Naturally, we want to do the opposite of what verse 14 says. We want to curse. We want to tell people what we really think. We want to be ready to get down with them. Naturally, we want to curse those who persecute us. Naturally, we want to curse those who speak bad about us. Naturally, we want to curse those who gossip about us. And naturally, we want to destroy those who we consider an enemy or an opponent. Have you ever heard the phrase small man complex? Anybody ever heard that phrase before? Small man complex or... the Napoleon complex. Some of us have heard this before, right? These complexes are basically when a man feels inadequate because of his stature or his appearance, and he may try to overcompensate it with overly aggressive behavior. I want to make a confession to you guys this morning. I personally have a small man complex when it comes to people cutting me off, when it comes to people saying things, when it comes to people just on the street sometimes, my natural man, my flesh, reacts with a small man complex. I overcompensate. I get overly aggressive in my behavior. You know, there's moments where Christina has to remind, you're a pastor, what are you doing, dummy? You know what I mean? She, she looks at me, she's like, why are you reacting like that? Now, I've only been in a fight once in my life, if, if you want to call it that. I was 13 years old, and my 16-year-old neighbor came out of nowhere and socked me in the stomach. That was the whole fight. So I, I remember being on the ground, and he kicked me a couple times, and that was it. I lost. I didn't even swing once. And if we're being honest, it really wasn't even a fight. But when someone makes me mad, my small man complex comes out. And the reality is, I think that I can throw down with anyone. You know, I'll be at the mall or the gas station or something, and, and I, I literally feel like, man, I can take... You ever, does anybody ever think that way? Not that you're going to fight them, but you ever think, man, I could take that guy. Not going to lie, Manny, I've thought that about you a couple of times, but I, I thought I could take Manny. No, but, no, no, but that's our flesh. Our flesh is always looking to fight someone to argue with someone, to get down with someone. So to hear the words in, God's, in, in, in Scripture that we are to bless those who persecute us, we are told that we're not to curse those who persecute us. These words are significant for all of us. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, the Bible mentions that there are two types of, 
of persecutors. There are two types of persecutors. Number one, if you're taking notes, would you write this down? The first persecutor is someone who is unsaved and who directs unwanted and unsolicited hatred toward a Christian. Someone who's unsaved and they direct unwanted, unsolicited hatred toward a Christian. In other words, you're just living your life. You're shining for Jesus. And the very nature of you being light in a dark world automatically causes this unwanted persecution in your life. I hate to break the news to you. Some of you guys think everybody loves you, but there are people out there simply because of your relationship with Jesus that hate you. There's a hatred toward you. There's hostility against you. And the Bible calls that persecution or having someone who is a persecutor in your life. Listen to what Jesus said about the topic of persecution in the life of a Christian. Matthew chapter 5. Would you guys listen? It says in verse 43, these are Jesus' words. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. The point that Jesus is getting across is this. Because, listen, because you're a child of God, this is how you're going to handle having an enemy. Give me eyes for a moment, church. Just for a moment, I want you guys to think about who might be that enemy in your life. Now, I, I realize big picture, when we hear the word enemy, we think of Satan, we think of the devil, we think of 1 Peter chapter 5, you know, we have an adversary, an enemy, running around. I, I, I understand we have an enemy big picture, but on a day-to-day -day basis, do you have any enemies? Do you have people in your life where it's unsolicited, unwanted, yet you know that there's hatred? <clears throat> Verse 44 of Matthew chapter 5 tells us what we're to do with that enemy. Sorry, in verse 44, it says, you love your enemy. You're to love them. Now, I know this is hard because on, on their end, they're, they're free to feel and think however they want to think. They're, they're free to feel whatever they want to feel toward you. Yet God's word says you are to separate your flesh and how you feel. You're to love your enemy. Now, you might think, and I might think this is impossible, and yet we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us if we're a Christian. And so I can do all things through Christ. And so verse 44, you love your enemy. The second thing that Jesus says about our enemy is verse 44, you bless your enemy. So not only are you to love them, 
but you are to go out of your way to bless them. You see, for me, th- this one's crazy. How, you want me to go out of my way still to, to figure out how to bless them? How to figure out how to, how to some way make an impact in their life? Jesus says, bless them. In verse 44, Jesus also says, listen, do good to the person that hates you. If there's someone in your life and there's hatred, he says, figure out a way not only to love them, bless them, but do good to them. And then verse 44, this is the one, this is like the cherry on top. It says in verse 44, you pray for the person who persecutes you. And this isn't Jesus saying, hey, pray them to hell. Yeah, pray, you know, that they get hit by a car today so I don't have to deal with. No, no, no. Jesus, you can do it. All things through Christ. No, no. Listen, he says, pray. Figure out what's going on in their life. Seek how you can pray for this person. Why is there so much hatred? Why is there so much resistance to those who live in the light? Pray for them. Now, this morning, I mentioned that there are two types of persecutors. Secondly, the second type of persecutor, if you're taking notes this morning, is a persecutor can be someone within the church. A persecutor can also be, number two, someone within the church. Would you write this verse down? James chapter 5, verse 9. It says, don't grumble about each other brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Don't grumble, don't complain, don't murmur, don't make life harder. Remember, it's, it's unintentional, unsolicited involvement in your life, hatred, gossip, words, It says, don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters. What James is essentially saying is, hey, Christian, stop persecuting your brother or your sister. I've learned over the years that there are haters within the church. There are people, even in ministry, who for whatever reason try and make the life of another brother or sister in the Lord difficult. You know, Christine, we've experienced this in ministry where where you feel like, man, shouldn't these people make it easier? Shouldn't you feel welcomed? And yet we've experienced this. When we were at South Bay, I was our junior high pastor, and our high school pastor was moving on, and they asked me if I would pray about taking over the high school group. I thought, because I had already been involved in youth ministry, that it would be the seamless transition from being the junior high pastor to the high school pastor. I thought, you know, most of these high school kids in there, I used to have them when they were junior hires, and so I'll just move on over and man, it's just going to be great. I thought because I worked so closely with the high school pastor that all of his leadership 
would also welcome me and embrace me as their new pastor, and it would be this great seamless transition. Yet what Christine and I, we, what we experienced in our first six months of, of helping and serving in the high school ministry was what I would consider persecution within church. You see, we weren't welcomed. You know, even the worship leader at that, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Fredo's back there. He was a worship leader. No, he, he did welcome me. But there were leaders in the ministry that felt they were next in line. You know, people who were the number two guy under the pastor that was there. And I remember thinking, man, we're going to feel so welcome. And yet there were people that thought, man, why'd he cut the line? He needs to stay on his other side of the wall. We've already been helping in this ministry for years. Why wasn't it one of us? And I remember those first six months just being tortured. And I remember looking at the other side of the wall thinking, can I just go back? Can I just go back? The reason I share that for, with you guys this morning, number one, is so that you can feel really sorry for me, okay? But number two, the reason I share that with you guys this morning is because it's a reality even within the church. And I want to say this real quick this morning. When we come to church, when you plant yourself in a church body, when you say, hey, I, I'm going to plant myself here. This is, this is going to be home now. I pray that every single one of us listening, even watching, if you're with us online, that you would be, that we would be, that we would go out of our way to bless people. Going back to where we left off last Sunday, that we would be hospitable. That we would be people with open arms. Because let me say this this morning, there's already enough hate out there. There's already enough persecution out there. There's already enough people that don't like us out there. It needs to stop in here. And if there's jealousy, it needs to go. If it's pride, it needs to be laid down. We need to be excited for people. We need to be, in a sense, and I know we don't want to hear these words, we need to be, all of us, including the manly men in the room, we need to be cheerleaders for each other. Give me a yay, okay? Listen, we need to be cheering each other on, not persecuting each other within the church. Keep reading with me, verse 15. It says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 15 here speaks of a word that we're hearing a lot right now. We're hearing a lot about it in the media. We're hearing a lot about it on social media. It's the word empathy. Empathy. The dictionary defines empathy as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Verse 15 here is all about empathy in the body of Christ. You go back with me to verse 15. This is what it looks like. Rejoicing with those who rejoice. So if there's an opportunity in someone's life, if there's a situation that is, that is 
risen up in someone's life and they are rejoicing within the body of Christ, we are to come alongside the rejoicing Christian, the rejoicing person, and we are to rejoice with them. We are to experience that joy. But verse 15 also says something. Look at verse 15 with me. It says we are to weep with those who weep. So not only are we to be excited and have joy when something good is happening in someone else's life, we are to weep when there's a need to weep in someone else's life, in someone else's church, and in, in, in someone else's home. The origin of the word empathy, it comes from a German phrase that means to fill into. The illustration is to see into someone else's situation and to fill from their perspective. You fill into their situation. Now, because verse 15 is an exhortation to Christians, let me say this this morning, it's biblical to say that Christians are called to empathy. We are called to rejoice with those who rejoice, and we are called to weep with those who weep. Let me say this this morning. Empathy involves tears. Tears. I mentioned there were going to be some hard questions this morning. Let me throw the question out to you. When is the right time to cry? When's the right time to weep? You see, some of us aren't criers. Some of us aren't weepers. Some of us only cry when someone we know passes away. Yet there are a lot of people hurting. There are a lot of people within the body of Christ. There's a lot of people in our community who are hurting. And empathy involves tears. Empathy involves emotions. Empathy involves perspective. And how do you get the tears? Empathy involves listening. Listening, hearing how people are suffering hearing how people are being persecuted, listening to the pain in someone's life. Would you write this verse down? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. It says, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its part should have, listen, equal concern for each other. That's my prayer. For the Christian. That's my prayer for the body of Christ, that there would be an equal concern for each other. That we would be able to look around the room, that we'd be able to, if they don't go to our church, see someone hurting, maybe on Instagram, and we would look and we would say, man, I, I have concern for what they're going through. I have concern for how they're feeling. Verse 26 It says, if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. It's the same 
It's the same thing from Romans 12. If one rejoices, you rejoice. If one weeps, you weep with them. When a Christian is rejoicing, we are to rejoice with them. We're to be excited with them. We are to be enjoying God's faithfulness with them. But when life involves pain, when life involves suffering, when life involves weeping, we are to share in their pain. We're to share in their suffering, and we are to share in their tears. Yesterday, Christine and I, we caught up with an old friend, and she recently got a tattoo on her wrist with five small hearts. Christina asked, well, what do the five hearts stand for? She said, they stand for each one of my children. We looked around the, the room. We're like, don't you only have three? Well, when did you have two more? I mean, we, 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 when that happened? She says, yes, the other two are for the children that I conceived who were alive in me but they never made it to birth. She says, it's for the three you see and for the two you never met. You see, the Christian is called to listen. The Christian is called to share in someone else's situation. And when there's five hearts and only three kids, the Christian is called to tears. The Christian is called to weep with someone who's hurting. Let's move on, verse 16. It says, be of the same mind toward one another. Another translation says, live in harmony with one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Verse 16, one of the things we're gonna see in this text is that the theme is pride. And if you're taking notes, this word pride, I mean, we all know the word pride, but let me define it for you. It means to see myself above. The word pride means to see myself above. If I really believe that I'm above others, then I feel the need to constantly prove that I'm better than others. And, and, and that's where pride comes from. In verse 16, this word pride refers to setting your mind, it says, on high things. It says, do not set your mind on high things. And yet, obviously, since we were talking about the natural flesh earlier, our flesh so often wants to set our, our mind on high things. And because I need to lift myself up, that's what pride does, right? It lifts me up. Pride also causes me to have to tear others down. Let me say it this way. Pride is never lived at the, is always lived at the expense of others and at the expense of meaningful relationships in our life. In Proverbs chapter six, God gives us a list. There's not a lot of places in God's word where God gives us a list. But in Proverbs 6, he gives us a list. He says there are six things God hates, and the seventh is an abomination to him. 
And pride makes the list. Pride makes the list of things that God hates. Specifically, Proverbs 6 says, God hates a proud look. He hates that look of pride. And and we know what that looks like. Let's judge other people for a moment, okay? We know what it looks like on somebody else, right? Because we don't have it, but we know what it looks like. No. We know what it looks like on someone else, but we also know what it looks like on someone else because we also, at times, carry that same look, that look of pride. And according to God's word, that look makes God's top seven of things he hates. I believe for God, the the subject of pride is obviously a very personal one. You see, pride was the reason that Satan, Lucifer, rebelled. You guys remember Satan, Lucifer, was the worship leader, we're told, of heaven. And he was an angel that now we know is a fallen angel. But what caused him to fall? Pride. And so this is just my own thought, but if you take the scriptures, it'll lead you there. Why does God hate a proud look? Well, I I can almost guarantee you the first time that he saw a proud look was when he saw Lucifer, when he saw the enemy. And he saw the look. He saw the look when Lucifer said, "I, I, I will be like God. I will make myself like the most high. I, 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 I. That's pride's favorite word, I. And God saw the look. And so when he makes a list, he says, it makes the cut, it makes the list a proud look. I mentioned to you a moment ago, pride is always lived at the expense of others. People are always hurt by those who have that look. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10, says where there is strife, where there's division, where there's fighting, where there's unhealthy relationships, it says there's pride. So you want to find an unhealthy marriage? You find one. I also know that you're going to find some pride. Find friendships that are falling apart. Friends that are quarreling, fighting, divided. I'll tell you what you're also going to find. You're going to find pride. You're going to find pride. I believe it's accurate to say that pride in the body of Christ is the equivalent of cancer to the physical body. So just like the physical body has cancer and that cancer spreads and unfortunately many of us are heartbroken because we know that cancer also kills. It's the same thing in the body of Christ. I believe that pride is the cancer of the church. It spreads and it kills. It kills marriages. It kills relationships. It takes down leaders. Pride kills. 
Would you write this down? James chapter 4, verse 1. It says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? And I believe that the number one evil desire at war within all of us is pride. And so you look and you're like, man, why are people fighting? Why are people not getting along? Why are there quarrels? Pride. Pride divides. James chapter four, um, James chapter four, let me jump with you to verse six. It says, as the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse seven, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil and he will flee. Come close to God and God will come close to you. I find it interesting in verse seven, it says, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee. I believe the devil's greatest temptation, the greatest carrot in a sense that he dangles before the Christian is pride. So that's why he says, humble yourself before God. Lay down your pride. Resist the devil. He will flee. As you lay, listen, give me a for a moment, church. As we lay down our pride, verse eight, we come close to God. And God comes close to us. Go back with me to Romans chapter 12. It says also in verse 16, it says, associate with the humble. The word associate in the Greek, it literally means to lead away together. This speaks of togetherness and partnership. Simply put, partner or do life together with the humble. I'll tell you, one of the most ugly sights is a group where everyone has that proud look that God hates. Put them all together, have them all sit on a nice tan couch, all sitting together. And I mean, and you just, you, you look and you're like, man, look at all them. Look at all them. Love you guys. Listen, look at all them. It says, associate with the humble. Gather, congregate, partner, do life with the humble. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, it says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. If we didn't get the point this morning, God is saying, Don't have that look. Don't have that look. As we head towards the finish line this morning, I want to begin to land our study by continuing this theme of humility. Let's finish the end of verse 16. It says, do not be wise in your own opinion. Or another translation says it like this, do not have too high of an opinion of yourself. Sometimes our opinion of ourselves can be too inflated. 
let's be honest. Some of us, most of us, if we're being honest, probably all of us, have an area where we're a little too inflated when it comes to self. Our opinion of self is a little blown up. Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, it says, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So God's word is very clear. Do not be deceived. Do not be overly inflated when it comes to self. And there's something really important. If, and let me say this this morning. If you didn't get anything out of the message, or maybe you haven't been paying attention, or nothing's hit home yet, there's one thing I want to leave you guys with this morning. And I pray that this one last exhortation from verse 16 would be the thing that hits home for all of us. The heart of the exhortation here do not be wise in your own opinion. The teaching here is this. Never become unteachable. Never become so inflated that someone can't speak truth into your life. That someone can't come and correct you. That someone can't come and tell you what's up. That someone can't come along your side in love and say something to you. You know, never become that person who says, man, no one talks to me like that. Or how dare you come and say that to me. If it's truth and if it's shared in love, we need to be teachable. We need to be teachable. Don't ever become so set in your own opinion that God has no room to show you something. Whether it be in a Bible study setting, whether it be in a small group setting, whether it be in your time with the Lord, or whether it would be through friendship and God using someone to speak into your life, don't ever become so set in your opinion, in the opinion of yourself, that God has no room to show you something, that God has no room to correct you, that God has no room to change you, that God has no room to pour his word into your heart and give you godly perspective, or that God has no room to send someone in your, into your life to help you. I love the words of A.W. Tozer. He said, never be afraid of honest criticism. If the critic is wrong, you can help him. Yet if you're wrong, he can help you. Either way, someone's helped. When you speak into someone's life, when it's truth, someone's always helped. Someone always comes out better. Let me finish with this verse this morning. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 12. It says, do you see a person wise in their own eyes? Do you see someone full of pride, someone who's too inflated? It says, there is more hope for a fool than for them. You guys can close your Bibles. We're 
done this morning? Do you see a person? Is there a person amongst us this morning who's wise in their own eyes, who's inflated with self? There's more hope for the fool than there is for that person. I mean, such strong, such powerful words. My prayer for us before we pray this morning is that every single one of us would take the exhortations, that we would take the words, and that God would just have his way, that we would be teachable, that every time we come and gather for Bible study as church family, that we'd be teachable, that we would never say, I already know that, that we would never say there was nothing to learn, that we would never say, who's this person to try and speak into my life, but that we'd be teachable, ready to receive, ready to have God change us. Let me say this in closing. The saddest person in the body of Christ is the person who's been sitting in that chair for years, refusing to change. That's the saddest guy in the room. That's the saddest person in the room. The person who sits in the chair, receives the word, spirit speaks to them, and they say no. They say, I'm good. There's nothing for me to learn. There's nothing for me to change. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you've given us this space, this time, that we can sit and receive clear teaching, clear instruction from you. I pray, Lord, that you would strip us of our pride. God, that you would remove that look from our life. And that, Lord, in humility, we'd always be ready to receive. That we'd always be ready to be taught. That we'd always be ready by your spirit to be changed. And Lord, that's my prayer for us. That our times together wouldn't just be times so that we can say we showed up that there wouldn't be times where we can put another check on the calendar. I went to church. I did the routine. I'm involved in the ritual. But I pray, Lord, that we would come, that we would be meek, and that we learn from you. I pray this morning, Lord, that within the midst of our teaching, God, that there was something that there was something that was for us, that there was something that you want us to hold on to. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. Lord, now before we go, we want to worship you one more time. We want to worship you through song, through praise. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's all stand.